Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode one, the 16 great houses of ancient India. It's the 6th century BC, the new age of thought. In ancient Greece, the Greek miracles begun. Thales of Miletus is claiming everything's made of water. Pythagoras is writing geometry problems for students. In Mesopotamia, Cyrus has unified the crumbly remains of three great powers into one Persian empire. In China, Confucius is telling us to respect our elders and much more besides. And in ancient India, Buddha's founding Buddhism, Mahavira's founding Jainism, and there are as many as 63 other schools of thought um, being founded at this time. Today, we construct the stage where all this action's going on and where our story begins. First, we look at the landscape of northern India that Mahavira and Buddha preached in, and then we get a feel for the states who are going to be major players in our story. What made them distinctive? What were they like to live in? Don't worry, it's not going to be a dry series of lists. There's going to be plenty of adventures along the way. Around the plain of the Ganga. Huge cities and large states start to emerge once again. And the area is dominated by 16 great countries, 16 great houses. In Sanskrit, they're called um, Mahajanapadas. Maha means great and Janapada is a, a territory, um, including the, the villages and the countryside and the city. You can think of these a bit like tiny ancient Greek city-states, like, uh, like Athens, or uh, you could think of them a bit like Luxembourg is, right? Um, a smallish, uh, more or less autonomous little state. That's not quite right. Um, for, uh, for one thing, the Mahajanapadas are, are, are much bigger, uh, or some of them are, and they contain several different large cities, some of them. And for another thing, uh, they can contain um, several different little countries themselves. Uh, they can be a federation of little, different, different countries. But anyway, we'll get to all this. Imagine you're in ancient India, and you're taking a tour from the very northeast of India, where the mountains feed the great rivers. And you're, you're travelling in a doddering fashion, um, swinging to the north and the south, uh, eastward, downstream, along the Ganga, all the way to the sea. On that tour, you'd pass through the following Mahajanapadas, the following great houses. Cambodia, Gandhara, Madra, Kuru, Matsya, Panchala, Shurasena, Vatsa, Kosala, Kashi, Mala, Vriji, Magda, Anga, and then you'd see the sea. The Tordown River would miss out on a few of the Mahajanapadas, which are too far to the south, Avanti, Chedi, and Ashmaka. If you've been paying very close attention, you'll have noticed that I said there were 16 great houses, and then I gave you 17 names. Well spotted. That's because... We've got three different sorts of sources uh, for the history of this time. We've got the sort of the Brahminical sources, the Jain sources, and the Buddhist sources. And they're written at different times and with different interests. And so in this case, they wrote different lists of the great houses. For example, the Brahminical texts miss out on a couple uh, of, the, of, the, of the great houses that are towards the sea at the end of your tour, the Vrigi and the Mala. And they miss out on them probably because these aren't really... Um, kingdoms, they don't have a king, 
they, they're oligarchies, they're republics. They don't neatly fit into the Brunican idea of what a great, great house should be, what a great state should be like. Anyway, don't worry, none of this is going to be on the test. For our story, we only really needed to know what was going on in three of these great houses. So these are the names to remember. Magda. This is down towards the mouth of the Ganga, towards the end of the tour. This is where our city, Pataliputra, will be. But at the moment, it's just a village. Uh, Vrigi. This is an invincible republic on the opposite, on the northern bank of the Ganga from Magda. And Kasala is their powerful neighbour upstream. So Magda, Vrigi, and Kasala. By the way, a, a note about pronunciation. Um, some people say Magda, some people say Magad. Um, some people say uh, Mahajanapada, some people say Mahajanpad. The difference seems to be that the first of those is the Sanskrit version and the second is the Hindi version. As far as I can tell, it's okay to say both in English. I'm going to stick with the Sanskrit version. Around these great houses, there are plenty of other smaller political entities, little clans, little states. Some nested up in the foothills of the Himalayas or occupying a little town. And we're going to learn the story of, and the fate of some of those. Okay, enough of long lists, time for a story. And the story involves the kings of, the, of two of the, the, the great houses. They're great houses that are, are south, a little way from uh, our, our main story. Uh, the first is Vatsa, and the king of Vatsa loved elephants. He had a secret technique for taming them. He'd, he'd go out into the forest, he'd find a wild elephant, and he would chant to it and whisper in its ear until it became tame and used to him. And then he'd lead it off and he'd put it in his army. So as a consequence, he had this great army full of war elephants. That was the first king, the king of Vatsa. The second king is the king of Avanti. And the king of Avanti is a, is a famously cruel man. He's usurped the throne and he's greedy um, and constantly pushing on his neighbours to see what he can get. Well, one day, the king of Avanti says to his, uh, his advisors, he says, is there any king whose glory is greater than mine? And the advisors quickly come back and say, yes, my lord, yes. Uh, the king of Vatsa, the king of Vatsa is, is much more powerful than you and his glory is greater than you. And the king of Avanti goes into a huge rage and says, I'm going to crush that king. I'm going to crush Vatsa. But the advisor said, my lord, you can't. He's got this great uh, army full of war elephants that he's captured using his secret technique. So the king of Avanti thinks for a while, and he's a cunning fellow, and he comes up with a plan. And he gets the workmen to construct a very strange thing, an elephant made of wood and hollow on the inside. And he, paints the, he gets them to paint the elephant very cunningly. And inside the elephant, he puts 60 soldiers and he wheels the elephant to a forest that's on the boundary between the two great houses, between Vatsa and Avanti. And sure enough, the king of Vatsa is out one day and he hears about this huge elephant that's been spotted at the border. And he says, right, I'm going to get this elephant. 
It's an elephant, they tell him, like no other elephant we've ever seen. So he rushes over with his small little band of followers to go and start the chant, to start um, whispering in the elephant's ear and taming it. And just then, the men pop out of the wooden elephant and capture him and race back with him to Avanti, to the palace. And the king is captured. And he's put into prison. Well, the king of Avanti goes to his captive and says to him, Look, I really want to know that secret you have of taming elephants. You've got to tell it to me. And if you tell it to me, I'll free you and I'll spare your life. I mean, obviously he's going to free him, he's going to spare his life, but hey. But the king of Avatsa says, okay, sure, I'll teach you that, but first you have to give me respect like a teacher. You have to come and you have to touch my feet and ask for my blessing. And the king of Avanti is far too proud for that. So he says, absolutely not, absolutely not. But what I'm going to do is I'll get someone else uh, to uh, come uh, and they will teach you uh, you, you, sorry, you will teach them and, and they will treat you like a teacher. They'll pay you respect like a teacher. And he looks around his court for someone who could, um, who, who, who could go to the king of Vatsa and learn the chant from him. Someone he trusts enough. And he realises that he doesn't trust any of his advisors. The only person he trusts is his daughter. Um, but he's very wise to the fact that his daughter is a very beautiful woman. And the king of Vatsa is a very uh, kind of virile young man. So he comes up with a plan. He says to, the, to his daughter, look, we've captured this ugly uh, dwarf. Uh, and the dwarf is so ashamed of his appearance that he doesn't want to be seen. But we want you to learn from him this secret chant of how, how, to, learn, how to tame elephants. So we're going to put you behind a curtain and you treat him with respect due to a teacher. And you learn from him this chant. But you never look at his face. And then he goes to the king of Vatsa and he said, um, OK, I've found someone to learn this chant from you. You teach it to them and then I'll set you free. But they are a terribly ugly hunchback. Um, so they don't want to be seen. They're going to hide behind a curtain um, and, uh, and you're never going to see them. But they'll pay you respect as a teacher and you teach them and then you'll be set free. And so it starts and the king sets up a curtain and on one side of the curtain is his daughter and the other side of the curtain is the king of Vatsa and they're learning from one another. The daughter's actually pretty slow at first to catch on and uh, the king of Vatsa gets frustrated and in a, in a moment of frustration he, she, he shouts at Xpeters, are you stupid hunchback? And she gets furious back, who, who the hell are you calling hunchback? I'm not a hunchback, you stupid little dwarf. And the, the king of Vatsa, um, in fury, tears, up, tears up, up, apart the curtain and sees this beautiful woman uh, uh, standing there looking furiously at him. And they realise that they've been tricked and duped by the king of Avanti. And so they conspire with one another. And to cut a long story, story short, uh, the daughter says that we need to practice on an elephant. Um, and so the king of Avanti brings them an elephant and they escape on the elephant, um, dropping bags of gold behind them to distract their captors. And so the, the, that's how uh, the king of Vatsa escaped with the daughter of the king of Avanti, and uh, they get married, and she lives as queen. Okay. Um, Vatsa, by the way, very rich place. Um, that's the moral of that story. Loads of money to drop uh, to distract people who are following you. Don't know quite where he kept it in prison.
Okay, so let's say a little bit more about our three major great houses, the ones that are going to be most important for our story. Those, remember, were Kasala, Vrigi, and Magda. So the kingdom of Kasala. In distant times, Kasala is a, a kingdom of, of, of epic legend. Right? It said it ruled uh, all the way from Nepal and the Himalayas down to the Deccan Plateau and, and maybe even down all the way to Sri Lanka in the south of the subcontinent. It appears in, in both the great Hindu epics. In fact, Rama himself is said to be from what was once the capital of Kasala. In our period, Kasala occupies the area upstream from Magda, um, north all the way to the foothills of the Himalaya. You get the, the sense that these are a hardy mountain folk, and they seem to feel safest in their mountain home. The capital uh, is um, Shravasti, that's in um, modern-day Nepal. But there are other great cities in uh, Kosala. Right? In fact, of the six greatest cities of ancient India, two of them are in Kosala. Um, in addition, we have Rama's own city, uh, which seems to have been a relatively small city during this time. So there's a bunch of cities in Kosala, and it occupies a huge area. Kasala is a major power in the area, and, and during our time, it's once again on the rise. It, it's actually conquered the neighbouring Mahajanapada, Kashi, already. And Kashi was very rich, so that's made Kasala extremely rich. And it's made Kasala huge, right? Kasala is now around the size of France. It's the big daddy of the Gangetic Basin. During this time, it's ruled by King Prasenajit. Prasenajit's an Im important character in our story, so it's worth finding out a bit about him. When he was a child, his father sent him to study in Taxila. Uh, as a, as a, young, a young man, um, Taxila is many miles away in the Punjab. It's the greatest place to study in all of India. Uh, on his return, he was made king still as a young man. And he turned out to be very tolerant. He allowed all sects, not just um, the, the Brahminical stuff, but also uh, Buddhists and Jains. He allowed them all to flourish under his rule. And he talked personally with the Buddha quite a lot, and he found him quite convincing, although he was never exactly converted. What was life like in Kasala for everyday folk? It's kind of hard to say, but we can get some idea. Most people will have lived in huge uh, cities um, or in craft villages. The actual countryside between them was quite empty. Craft villages are villages which specialise in one sort of craft, so almost everyone in the village would, in one village would be working on statues, right, carving statues out of stone. And in another village, almost everyone would be working on uh, constructing wooden scaffolding or something like that. So you either lived in a huge city or a craft village. And for most people in Kosala, power was centralised in the hands of the king and his advisors. So very probably the king owned your land or at least owned the wasteland around your village. So if you wanted to you know, extend your, your house, you had to go and buy land off the king. For some other people in Kasala, the king um, was kind of a distant power and actually you're ruled almost entirely by a local, um, local body or a local person. Um, so for example... We have stories of Kasala conquering um, independent little clans and kind of leaving their political structure intact. Um, well, actually, we'll come to us. Let's, let's tell a story about that in a moment. 
Um, you also get talk from a slightly later period of these Raja Bogo. These are, the, these are kind of uh, officials who who run a county, run a small area, and they're kind of they are the government of that area. They're the judge. They set the rules. They suppress the revolts. They take the tax. But the king tells them how much tax they're allowed to take. They're not allowed to take whatever tax they want. So the king is still a very uh, important figure in most people's lives. But for some people, he's a bit removed. He didn't actually have much direct uh, influence on your life. King Prasenajit is pretty open-minded about the, the new sects. Nevertheless, you get the feel that in Kasala, Brahminical orthodoxy has a lot of influence on people's day-to-day -day lives. In particular, your Varna matters a lot, right? Your, uh, which Varna is kind of like your, your, your caste. Let's translate it as your caste for now, and we'll talk about it in more depth later. So uh, whether you're a Brahmin or a Kshatriya, um, matters a lot, right, to, to what you can do in life. This is an old-time conservative kingdom. Anyway, we can get a flavour of uh, what it's like to live in this kingdom with a story. And this is the story of why Kasala conquered the Shakyas. Remember, King Prasenajit of Kasala was a tolerant man and he spoke personally with the Buddha. And he was very impressed. And so impressed that he, he wanted to marry in to the, the Buddha's clan. The Buddha's clan were the Shakyas. The Shakyas are a small tribe up in the foothills of the Himalayas. Now, we know an awful lot about them simply because that's where the Buddha was from, so Buddhist texts give us loads of details, but actually, they're politically pretty insignificant. Anyway, Prasenajit wants to marry into the, the Shakya clan, um, so he sends off an emissary uh, uh, asking for one of their princesses to marry. The princess arrives in the Shakya capital, and they have a think about it, and, and they decide it's beneath their dignity to send one of their princesses to this, uh, this king from this huge nation. They were kind of a proud people. So they refuse to send one of their noble women. Instead, what they do is they decide to send the bastard child of their king and a slave woman. Uh, the slave woman's name, just for posterity, was Vasavakatya. Uh, anyway, so they send off this slave woman, but they say, look, pretend that you're a princess. And she arrives in Prasenajit's capital, and Prasenajit says, ah, great, this is that um, Shakya princess, and they get married. And they have a, a happy marriage of sorts, right? Um, at the very least, they have a couple of children. One of those children's called Virudaka, and uh, Prasenajit loves Virudaka and makes him uh, his heir. Uh, well, many years later, when Virudaka was grown up, he decided that he was going to visit his maternal gr grandmother's house and find out where he came from. So he goes over to, to the, the foothills of the Himalayas and he finds the Shakya tribe. And he goes through uh, the, the, the capital city asking about his mother. He goes to the palace first and they say, no, no, she's not here. Go down that road. And he goes to a grand house and say, no, 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 she's not here. Go down that road. And pretty soon he's at the shady end of town and he finds this little hovel where his grandmother lives. And he works it out that his grandmother is, uh, sorry, that his mother is not a princess at all, but a daughter of a slave. Well, 
news gets back of this to Prasenajit, and Prasenajit is furious. Uh, he really loves his wife and really loves his son, but he can't be seen to be uh, married to someone of such low birth. So he throws his wife out of the palace and he disinherits his son, so his son is no longer heir to the kingdom. Well, the Buddha's travelling around uh, the, the Gangetic Basin and he hears about this and he goes to see King Prasenajit. He says, no, no, you, you got it, it's not the, the, the nobility of the mother that matters, but the nobility of the father. And your wife's uh, father is a king, right? he's a king of my people. So actually, for us, the mother's considered a princess. Well, Prasenajit's a good chap. He felt forced to throw his wife out, forced to disinherit his son, but now he's found an excuse to welcome that back in, them back in. So, so somehow he manages to persuade them to come back in. He re-inherits his son, Virudaka, and um, um, takes his wife back into the palace. Well, time went on. Prasenajit grew old, and he died. And his son, Virudaka, uh, duly inherited the kingdom. But Virudaka wasn't the tolerant, broad-minded man his father was. He nursed a grudge. He hated the Shakyas for their deception. Hated them for making him look like a fool. Hated the Buddha for his tricksy ways. So he got the huge army of Kasala, now at his control. And he marched into the mountains and he massacred the Shakyas and completely took over um, their lands. Okay, two things to pick out from this story. Number one, yes, there were slaves in ancient India. Um, there probably weren't that many. In, in particular, they don't appear often in other stories. Um, when a Greek ambassador called Megasthenes um, stayed in the area for quite a long time, he thought there were no, sla there were no slaves at all. But there are slaves. They're just pretty rare. The second is that Kasala had a huge army and crushing a small tribe like the Shakyas was no big deal. So that's Kasala. The second of our three great houses is the Vrigi. Uh, Vrigi, remember, is set on the north side of the Ganga, on the other side of the river from Magadha. And it goes, stretches from there all the way up to the foothills of the Himalayas. And this is down towards the sea end of the Ganga. And uh, the Vrigi the, the have, the Vrigi is a confederation of different clans, but they have a capital city, capital city in Vaishali. And Vaishali is about, uh, it's about 30 miles north of the Ganga, probably. And it's surrounded by three great walls. And behind these great walls, there are these uh, beautiful courtyards with, with lotus ponds and these, these fine and, and tall townhouses. It's a beautiful, wonderful place. And behind the capital, Vaishali, the great forest starts, and it stretches from there all the way up to the foothills of the Himalayas. Vrigi is not a kingdom. Maybe once upon a time it was a kingdom, but now it's a collection of clans and there is no king. It's a republic, a Ghana Sangha. Uh, Ghana Sangha are really interesting sorts of political entities. They're, Ghana Sangha is often translated as republic, and they're often seen as sort of proto-democracies along the lines of ancient Athens. And that's not too badly wrong. So Ghana, uh, Ghana means equal status or you know, people of equal status. 
uh, Sangha is it means assembly. So a Ghana Sangha is an assembly of equals, and that's how the Ghana Sangha were ruled. They were ruled not by a king, but by a group of uh, a few thousand um, uh, equals who came to an assembly and debated stuff and then voted. The Ghana Sangha, those words are also used for other things like the community of Buddhist monks as the Sangha. Or Ghana Sangha was sometimes used to refer to a group of traders who got together in a corporation and, and worked with one another. So it's assembly of equals quite loosely. There are quite a few political republics, political Ghana Sanghas, dotted around India. And actually over the coming centuries, they're just going to survive. They're always quite small, but they survive until uh, the early medieval period. We've got these little proto-democracies. Okay, let's get more concrete. So... Vrigi is made up of a bunch of clans, um, each of which are also Ghana Sanghas, it seems. One of these, the most important of these at, the, at our time, are the Lichavi. And the Lichavi are the most important because they run the capital city. Right? They run Vishali. Um, and we're told that their assembly is composed of 7,707 Rajas. Where these are the guys who run, uh, run the Lichavi. And these are probably just the male heads of the, the, the posh families. Not all the families are involved. In fact, perhaps only those from uh, the ruling caste are involved. But anyway, these 7,707 um, Rajas, they come to the assembly in the capital city and, and they have the debates and they, and, and they vote to make decisions. Voting is done on um, little wooden voting slips called salakas. And there's a civil service too, it's not just the assembly, there's a treasurer, there's a commander of soldiers, there are some judges and so forth. So you can think of it uh, a, a bit like an Athenian democracy and you're really not too far off. It's of course a long way off a modern democracy. Right? There's no universal suffrage here. No woman could be Rajas. and At the very best they could be married to one. What's more, um, there's this huge underclass beneath the ruling families, the, the Dasa Karmakara. Uh, these are labourers who you're not related to. And it's a bit unclear whether they were just a huge pool of slaves uh, or day labourers. Very probably it was a mix of both. Life in Vrigi was therefore very different to life in the kingdoms like Kusala. Number one, your state was actually significantly smaller uh, simply because people need to be able to walk to the assembly to vote on things. So your state, you're, you're really living in Lichavi, which is part of this great confederacy. Uh, you're living in quite a small political entity. And you kind of know most people then, um, if you're a mover and shaker in the clan. And clan loyalty is important to you, therefore, in a way which just isn't in the kingdoms. Uh, it, it's a huge part of your identity, and correspondingly, your varna, your, your, your kind of major caste, is less important. And indeed, um, you know, Brahminical culture is less important overall. Right? In addition to kind of more or less ign ignoring uh, varna, the major caste, they didn't perform all the Brahminical rituals correctly. They venerated sacred groves rather than the sorts of things they were supposed to venerate. And you, you can read through the Brahminical texts and they, and they complain that people in these republics... They don't show any respect to Brahmins. They don't, they don't show respect to their ancestors. They, they just go around this kind of self-centred attitude saying, I am the king, I am the king. Um, so they're really not in that Brahminical orthodoxy in the same way that the kingdoms are. Even the fact that, that they don't have one king 
runs against the way um, that um, Brahminical culture wanted states to be. So these are more revolutionary, more free-thinking places. They're, they're places on the edge of the orthodoxy. And in fact, that's where the uh, great innovations uh, come from. That's where Mahavira came from. He came from a clan in the Vrijji, not the Lichavi, another clan in the Vrijji. Uh, and Buddha came from the Shakyas, and the Shakyas were actually uh, another of these republics. So these places are a little bit edgy. Um, they have different um, and slightly unconventional rituals going on in them. But at the same time, the Vrijji are tremendously powerful politically and militarily. I mean, perhaps we think of dictatorships as the more powerful, right? more powerful than democracies. But ancient Indians thought of democracies or Sangagana as, as more powerful than dictatorships. Because, sure, a dictator can hire a bunch of mercenaries or have a professional standing army, but a democracy can call in its own people to defend the land that they rule, and they're going to fight until the very death, no matter what. So uh, there's a text which we're going to talk about a lot in future episodes called the Artashastra. Uh, it's kind of a, crudely, it's a kind of a Machiavellian guide to rulership and statecraft uh, for ancient India. And in the Artashastra, it's talking about how you should deal with different sorts of states. And it says, hey, if you've got a republic, don't try and beat them in battle. A republic cannot be beaten in battle by a king. Instead, you've got to make friends with them. You've got to use diplomacy with them. And this is a pretty broadly accepted idea. So here's a bit of a teaser. A couple of weeks on, a couple of podcasts down the road, we're going to meet a guy called Ajatashatru, um, he's the king of Magda at the time, and he wants to conquer the Phrygis. And he's sitting around, he says to himself, well, look, that Buddha is a smart chap, he, he's always telling the truth. And Ajatashatru has got this, this advisor known as Vasakara. Um, Vasakara means rainmaker. So he's got this advisor called Rainmaker. And he says, okay, Rainmaker, go and find the Buddha and get some advice about how to attack this republic, because these guys are pretty powerful. So uh, the rainmaker um, goes up to the, to the mountain peak where, where the Buddha is preaching, called Vulture Peak. He climbs all the way up to the top, and he sees the Buddha there sitting and preaching, and he, he pays him respects, and he sits down beside him, and he waits for him to finish preaching, and eventually the Buddha finishes preaching, and he turns to the rainmaker and says, what's up? And... Um, the rainmaker says, well, we really want to know what would happen or how could you beat the Vrijji? And the Buddha thinks about it a bit and then he says, look, so long as they keep to their traditions, their distinctive traditions, so long as they keep meeting in their assembly, um, they cannot be beaten by any king. The rainmaker nods his head and walks back down to Ajitasatru. And, well, that's the beginning of a different story. Last but not least of our three great houses is Magadha. Magadha is kind of our house. It's where the city that we're going to be following in this podcast will be. The city doesn't exist yet. It's just a small village on a slight rise on the side of the Ganga called Patali Grama. Anyway, Magadha's uh, set in this reasonably narrow strip of land on the south bank of the Ganga. So the Ganga is to the north of it, and to the south is this, this very dense forest, impassable to any army. 
it, it's a very hilly area, and it's not it's not huge. It's about fifteen percent the size of Kasala, but it's got some advantages. It's got rich soil, very fertile soil, and it's got some control of of, of both the the river and the land trade that flows up and down the Ganga. And the capital city is one of the great cities of ancient India. Not Pataliputra yet, remember, that doesn't exist. Instead, it's Rajagriha, the house of kings. It's uh, surrounded uh, by five hills, and as you would approach it, you would come across first a great moat and an earthen rampart. And if you got over that, you'd come across the hills, and, and there are walls running through the hills, walls made of uh, huge stone blocks, up to five feet in length, just laid one on top of the other. Um, the stone wall is about three and a half metres high, but about five foot wide. Um, and if you got over those huge stone walls, uh, you'd, you'd come uh, to a little gully, uh, which was there to, to drain the monsoon rains out, and then onto a plateau where the city itself stood with its with wonderful stone buildings. So this is a really important city, I mean, partly because of, of, of trade reasons, but you can tell its importance by the fact that it has these great stone walls. I mean, later capital cities didn't all have stone walls by any means. Um, by the way, the city's still there, uh, and you can go and visit it if you like. It, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place, apparently, and there are hot water springs and all that sort of stuff. I hope I get to visit it one day. Life in Magadha was kind of halfway between life in Kasala and, and life in Vrigi, right? You get the sense that this place hasn't got the, the, the full weight of Brahminical tradition on it. There are theories which say that Brahminical tradition of that particular sort was kind of pushing its way uh, eastward at this time, and maybe it, it didn't quite have um, full sway in Magadha yet, hadn't quite reached that far east yet. Uh, and in fact, the Brahmins and the, the, the Kshatriyas that, that, that were, were called, uh, who, who lived in Magadha, were called by other people, so-called Brahmins, so-called Kshatriyas. So they're not really part of the caste system, they're not properly Brahminical, it is the idea. It's a bit of, uh, maybe even a slight amount of sneeringness about it. So there's some Brahminical culture, uh, but, but not as much as in, as in Kasala. Nevertheless, it's, it's not the kind of radical place that uh, Vrigi was. It's not that kind of, uh, on, on a different way of looking at the world. And, okay, this is the, the world that Mahavara and, and, and Buddha preached in. This is the, the stage where uh, all these stories are played out and the stage where our story is going to begin. You've almost certainly had enough of hearing what I've got to say. So I thought I'd give you something from the mouths of the ancients each week, so to speak. A quote from a source that's contemporary to the, the events we're talking about, or at least as close to contemporary as I can find. It's going to be difficult for a few weeks because there's nothing written down, um, at least until episode five or six. Um, the closest I can find is Panini. Panini's uh, uh, a famous in, uh, inventor of Italian sandwiches, uh, and also... Uh, Panini is the constructor of the first systematic grammar in the world, uh, this, this grammar of Sanskrit. It's, it's a beautiful thing. He wrote a book called The Eight Chapters, 
And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's eight chapters of very cleverly crafted uh, and very dense grammar rules. These rules are really concise. They're really complex. It's a bit like reading programming languages or or a formal logic. It has that that same confusion between precision and clarity. Uh, In fact, it used to be a test of a student's ability whether they can master the eight chapters. A bit like maybe learning calculus before you come to university uh, uh, is now. Anyway, so Panini's written this, this, this systematic grammar, and it's one of the, the greatest intellectual achievements, um, and, and it remains the, the best systematic grammar uh, right up until the 19th, 20th century. Unfortunately, it's a bit dry. Here's what Panini has to say. So we open the Panini textbook, and it starts like this. Chapter 1.1 A, E, O These letters are called Riddy. Point 2 A, E, O These letters are called Guna. Point 3 In the absence of any special rule, uh, whenever Guna of Riddy is enjoined about any expression by using the terms Guna of Riddy, it is to be understood to come in the form of the ik vowels only of that expression. Point four. The gunan ridi substitutions which otherwise would have presented themselves do not take place when such an arda datuka um, affix follows which causes a portion of the root to be elided. And so on. You get the idea, it's dense dry stuff. Well, that's an inauspicious start Um, to From the Mouse of the Ancients, but let's hope for some poetry next time. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks again to my friend Cam Chadder for the music. And again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks. Take care.